0: This morning we we start a new series in the book of James. I'm very excited about where God is going to take us as a church through this book. I wanted to start by a quote by D.L. Moody, a renowned man of the faith. He said, a man ought to live so that everybody knows he's a Christian, and most of all, his family ought to know. Now think about that for a minute. What is he trying to say? A man ought to live so everybody knows he's a Christian, and most of all, his family ought to know. And he's on to something that is just really true of our Christian walks. He's saying our Christian walk needs to affect every area of our life. Now, at home, sometimes where we let down our guard, right? And and we can put on a nice face in front of others, and we can come and be happy on Sunday morning. Everyone thinks we have just just a, a perfect life, but we get home and the door shuts. And sometimes that's where we drop our Christianity. And sometimes that's where we drop our guard and we're not as protective against temptation. And, and attitudes can creep in and harsh words towards each other. And, and this isn't so much going to be a series about how to live your faith in your home. But what I wanted to do was to use that quote as a start to say our faith is something that should be lived in every part of our lives, even at home. It should be lived at work. It should be lived when we are at rest, when we're in entertainment. It should be lived while we're at church, while we're at home. No matter where we are, God wants every part of our life. There is no part of our lives that are not affected by the fact that we're believers, that we're Christians. And that's what Moody was getting at, and that's what the book of James is going to get at. On Vision Sunday, just a couple months ago, we talked about having a 24-7 faith. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our faith should affect who we are because it is who we are. I am a a follower of Christ first and foremost before anything else. And so being a follower of Christ affects 100% of my life. We don't want to compartmentalize our life into, okay, this is where I can be a Christian. And this is where I can think about spiritual things and godly things. And, And with this subset of people, I can actually talk about Christian things. But over here, hey, I don't have to necessarily act like a Christian. Or because, you know, I did my time. Check. I went to church. I even did my quiet time this morning. So I'm more mature than any of you. We can think that way, right? And we can begin to compartmentalize and check off our Christian walk without realizing that God wants it to be who we are, not just a list of things we do we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. On Vision Sunday, we used Philippians 1.27 as a launch verse. I want to read it again as we launch into James. Paul said to the church at Philippi, only let your manner of life, who you are, the general description of your life, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you Or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And Paul used that to say our whole lifestyle should be characterized by the fact that we're followers of Christ. And he gives them an example, whether I'm there or not, no matter what the time, no matter who's watching, can we tell that we're followers of Christ? And he challenges them to to express that in doing the work of God Uh, make sure their deeds, their actions are reflecting what they say they believe. Maybe maybe a good example would be in in something that we can all relate with a little bit more. How much of my life does being married affect? Being married affects all of my life, right? Susie and I don't have an arrangement where on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday we're married. (laughs) You know where I'm going with that. Thursday and Friday, hey, those are off days. And then Saturday and Sunday, we'll be married again. That would be ludicrous. Because when we put on the ring, we wear it 24-7 because our vows are 24-7. We are one now. I I don't just give up being married. Imagine if you forgot you were married at work. Imagine the temptations that that might bring. Imagine that, you know, okay, I'm just not even going to think about my spouse for the next two days. I mean... It's ludicrous. But yet we do that to God so many times. And we forget that we are believers, we are followers of Christ 100% of the time. It defines who we are even more than married or single. Even more than male or female or, or, or our jobs or anything else. Following Christ should be the primary thing that defines us. As we come to the book of James, that is going to be the main theme of James. Does our faith define us does it infiltrate does it impact does it work its way through every part of our lives to where there is no part of my life that isn't owned by god christ and there is no part of my life that someone could look at and say i don't know if he's a believer or not and james is going to challenge us directly on some things and practically on some things and he's going to get to the nitty-gritty of life and say okay in this area how you doing what about in this area? We'll, we'll talk about some of that this morning as we give an overview. One of the things we do as we study through books of the Bible at Village is we always start with just an overview of the book, an introduction to the book. We want to get in a, a sense of the, the background and who wrote it, who it was written to, some of the themes. And this isn't just to fill another week. What we're trying to do is show you how to study the Bible well. When you come to study a book of the Bible, it is important to understand context. Those of you in Pastor Andrew's class, you've been hearing this over and over, right? Context, context, context. And so every series that we start on a book of the Bible, we start with that. And we're going to give you the context of James today because I think seeing the big picture helps us put all the little parts in place, especially in a book like James where it can feel so scattered. But when we understand the big picture, it's not scattered at all. This is a pastor preaching to the people that he cares about. And 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 it's almost like a sermon saying, let's get this area of life together. Let's get this area of life together. And so we're going to study James and the practical aspects of James. James is one of the most quoted books of the New Testament. It's one of the most loved books of the New Testament. I've heard many of you say, I can't wait for this series. And I, I love James. It is also sometimes one of the most despised and neglected books of the New Testament because some of the things in there are just uncomfortable and I'd rather not hear and I'd rather not have to apply. And so James is one of those books that in our our mindset, in our secular mindset, we might want to come to with whiteout and say, you know, there's some verses I really like. I want to quote those verses and I'm just going to whiteout some of the other verses. The whole thing in chapter three about the tongue, let's just rip that section out. And um, uh, about, about money? No, no, don't even go there. But we're going to go through the whole book. We're going to be challenged by it. So turn with me to James chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1 today. This isn't indicative of how long we're going to take. <laughs> verse 1 is the introduction. And so we're going to take verse 1 and talk about the introduction, talk about the setting and who wrote it. James chapter one, verse one. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardback one and a seat right around you. We invite you to take that. James is about three-quarters of the way through the Bible near the end. It's a little book um, right after Hebrews. James, chapter one, verse one, right at the beginning. So it starts with James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to stop there. So, right from the start, we want to know who wrote it. James, right? And so the question we'd have to ask is which James? James was a common word. It would be like us in this church saying, well, Andrew wrote it. Okay, there's a whole number of Andrews. So, who wrote that? So, so we want to start um, digging into that and understanding that. There's really only three reasonable options of who could have written James. And one of them is, is James the brother of John, right? the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder. And so that would have been a well-known James, a disciple of Christ that could have wrote this. The problem with that is we know that he was martyred probably before James was written. And that makes it hard to write James. And so we would cross that one off and say, that's probably not one of them. Another possibility is there was another disciple named James, James the son of Alphaeus. Um, And and most in the early church, actually, James, the book of James was never attributed to him because he didn't write. He wasn't well known in 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 terms of leading the church. And so that one, just because of obscurity, we would say it's probably not that one. Church tradition is probably correct. The author is probably Jesus' half-brother. James, Jesus' half-brother. And this is, this is an interesting story and I want to dig into his testimony a little bit because I think it helps us understand what's happening. And, and so the early church and historical documents all say it was James, Jesus' brother. Um, and Jesus' brother, half brother was probably the most well-known and prominent James in the early church. But how did he get there? How did this happen? Because James was Jesus' brother. I, I can, as I'm studying this and looking through this, I can just imagine Jeffrey coming to Mark and saying, I know you're the Messiah. And I'm going to worship you. This would never happen. Almost as funny as if Mark went to Jeffrey and said, I'm the Messiah. You need to worship me. We, we, have, we have things, think of your own brother. You know I'm right. There are, there are issues. There are issues here that would make this hard. And so we know that James was skeptical at first. We know that James was not a believer. Now, James was probably the oldest of four brothers that Jesus had. And so he's the, the oldest next in line. Jesus is off doing ministry. He's the one taking care of family. He's the oldest one sort of taking on that role. But we know through Scripture, and I just want to do a quick overview through Scripture, we know that James had an issue with his brother. And he didn't follow him. In John 7, verse 5, we read, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. This is in Jesus' ministry. And so James is not a fan. He's not liking his page on Facebook. Mark 3.21 says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And so James is that... Next brother saying, you're nuts, Jesus. You're, you're thinking you're the Messiah? I've seen you at home. No, 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 no. But, but really, what did he see at home? And, and that's, that's the whole little brother dynamics that would be hard. And what do you say? Do you go to mom and say, Jesus hit me? She's like, right. <laughs> this is how he grew up. You know, mom comes and said, who, who let the neighbor's donkeys loose? And James says, I didn't do it. Jesus did it. Right. Jesus, did you do it? No. He didn't do it. <laughs> Jesus, did James do it? Yeah. <laughs> mom, how do you know he's not lying? He's the Messiah. Now, I don't know if this actually happened, but you've got to understand these are real stories and a real family really growing up. He did not follow Christ while during Christ's ministry. In fact, in Matthew 13, 57, this is really interesting because I've heard this verse and, and I was looking it up in other Gospels and I got to Matthew and there was two extra words that I hadn't seen before. Matthew 13, 57, a prophet is not without or on A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. We've heard that, right? It's hard for a hometown to recognize. But Jesus actually added a couple words. And in his own household. And we get just a picture, a window into that his household didn't... Now we know Mary did. So that sort of leaves the brothers as the ones that are really struggling here. It's hard to be a prophet in your own hometown or in your own house. And so this is the guy that wrote the book of James. At this point, you might be saying, why are we studying this? But something changed. Something changed. Jesus sought him out and captured his heart and changed his heart and saved him. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15.7. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15.7. Now, we don't know all the details, but we get little clues in Scripture. And so we're following the breadcrumbs in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is talking about His appearances and who He appeared to after He rose from the dead. And He goes through a number of situations, but then in verse 7, just a small verse, but don't miss it, then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Jesus made it a point to go see His brother. And and most scholars, and I would agree with them, I think this was the time that Jesus captured him. And Jesus took the initiative and went after him and said, James, we need to talk. And after the shock wore off that your dead brother's with you and talking with you, James began to see, began to see the truth. And, and one of the reasons we think this was the time or right in this time is we go to Acts 1.14 right after Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days later and it said all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So we know that the disciples were all in prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so something changed between his ministry and this point in Acts 1 where the brothers are now praying and they're part of the disciples and they're part of this group that is going to start the church. And what changed was an encounter with Jesus, I believe, with the resurrected Christ. Village, Jesus can save anyone. And he can change a heart of anyone. And if he is pursuing you, just give in now. And give your heart to him and follow him. Because he is the resurrected Christ. And if even his brother could come to a faith in him, how much more could we? James' story doesn't end there though. It's really interesting as we read later in Acts. We get to Acts 12 and 15 and 21. James, we see, is now one of the leaders of the church. In fact, it looks as if he is the lead elder in Jerusalem, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He has gone from a skeptic, someone that didn't believe his brother, to now he is the lead teacher of the main church. In Acts 15, this is during the, the Jerusalem council, and Paul and Barnabas are coming back and saying what's going on with the churches abroad. They come back to James. And all the assemblies fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through, through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. He's leading the meeting. He's organizing this. In Acts 21, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This brother of Christ, this skeptic, God captured his heart. He saved him and he became a pillar in the church, a foundation of the church, a leader in the church. And that is the man that wrote the book of James. And this is a man that hasn't been a Christian since he was born. This is a man that was skeptical. This is a man that had every reason not to follow Jesus. And he chose to follow Jesus when he saw the truth. And the words we see in James, I think, reflect this real life. Okay, what does conversion look like in my life? How does it affect every part of my life? Because as an adult, he went from not being saved to being saved. It's interesting as you look at that beginning, James, a servant of God. Now, if I'm writing a letter to the church and I'm James and I really want people to listen, maybe I say, James, a brother of Jesus! He's not pulling rank here. He's not pulling a title. He uses a word that means bond slave. Someone that has willingly become a servant, a slave underneath someone that will do anything God says. This is a statement of humility a statement of coming under, a statement of total commitment to God. And that total commitment previews what he wants his book to be about. It previews the theme of the whole book. He doesn't say, I'm the chief elder. I'm the the, the leader of the church at Jerusalem. I'm the brother of Christ. He says, a servant. A servant of God. And a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the the full title and name of Jesus, Lord being Master coming under him, Jesus being his name, Christ Christos being the Messiah. He uses the the full name of Jesus that would show his deity, that would show submission. And that's his brother that he's willing to say that about. And so we see the change, right? We see the change of heart from the little brother that was irked at his big brother probably, the the little brother that thought his big brother was out of his mind, to now calling him his Lord Jesus Christ. That's a man I want to listen to what he has to say and why he says it. And it's interesting because he comes in the the spirit of humility that, that he is a servant of God and that Jesus Christ is his Lord and he is about to say some really hard things. And he is about to say some really direct things that step on toes. And so many times we forget that when we come and when we say hard things to each other and we come and confront sin, that it always needs to be in a spirit of servanthood. It always needs to be in a spirit of I'm a fellow brother, a fellow sister in Christ. I'm walking this life with you. We are both servants of God. That is the tone that James strikes here. It's interesting. One of the historians, Eusebius, records about James that James used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people. So much so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. So from his excessive righteousness, he he was called James the Just. And that became his name in the early church, James the Just. But oh, oh that we would have that heart for prayer. Oh that our knees would be calloused, be out of kneeling in worship and prayer. What a change in this man's life. In AD 62, after Festus had died, the high priest Ananus, he executed James along with some other Christians. Persecution was ramping up, Christianity was not to be tolerated, and James was killed. Out of that, interestingly enough, there was a public outcry because James had such a heart for the people that the people had a heart for him. There was a huge outcry. That's the man who wrote the book we're about to study. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, God breathing through him, but his personality oozes through this as well, and his experience, a man that was against God, but then God changed, and he was for God. God can use anyone for his glory, anyone for the kingdom in powerful ways. We're going to see that through James. We go on and we read the, the second half of the verse. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. And I love how, how in biblical letters they give who it's from and who it's to right from the start. That just helps you know. We, we do that with letters. We always look at the end, right? You, you never read a letter without knowing who it's from. And, and, and so right from the start we get this information. He says, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. And so his audience is, is probably to Jewish Christians that are spread outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem. But the general application is to all Christians, to all believers. So it's specifically to Jewish Christians, but generally to all believers in the world. Now some have said, oh, the twelve tribes and the dispersion. Peter uses the dispersion to reference the church, and maybe this is more symbolic of the whole church. That's a possibility, but really when we get to, when we get words like twelve tribes, and, and looking at his language and his tone, it really looks like he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so we want to keep that in mind as we read it and, he, and read some of the symbols and some of the illustrations he uses because we can understand them through Jewish eyes then. And so he writes to these Jews that have been spread away. The, the dispersion comes from diaspora in, in the Greek, which means to scatter or to sow. And so think of a farmer, if you had a bag of seed and you just started throwing it on the field, that's what the word meant. And the idea is that the the Jewish Christians here are being scattered through the world. We have a a little map here because what is an introduction without a map? And down here you see Jerusalem. And Palestine, this area refers to, to Israel here. And so this is where James is at and probably writing from. But he's writing to Christians who now mostly because of persecution are being scattered across the known world. Probably mostly up in this area, all through here. A few maybe down in Egypt, but mostly we saw Jewish Christians coming up here. Now we do know that there were Jews that were over here. I don't know if you can tell where that is. Um, It's up near Babylon and Assyria. And we know from the exile Jews were there, but those would not have been Jesus-believing Jews. And so the, the Jews that believed in Jesus probably were making their way up there. Now we can look at that and we can say, Oh, that is horrible for them. But what was God doing to His church? He was spreading His church. He was spreading the good news of the Gospel. And if people weren't going to go, they got sent. And and so He was using a difficult situation for His glory and for the purpose of the church. But that does help us understand what the people that James is writing to were going through. If you get kicked out of your home country and you have to leave, and you don't have much, and you go to a strange place where already you're, you're down a notch because you believe in, in this guy named Jesus instead of the emperor. And so most of the time, these Christians that were dispersed really struggled with poverty and persecution. They lived lives of exiles, strangers in, in the land. And the trials that would come from that and, and the difficulties that would come from living that life of poverty were huge. Not only trials in their life, but how others viewed them, and and in, at the time you had a feudal system where you had landlords that would rent land and or and, and you had to work for them, and that worked for many, but maybe they couldn't even get into that system and couldn't even get land to work, or as often happened, the rich landlords would take advantage of people, and have them work their land and then cheat them on their money, and and so you're you're just trying to make away with your family, and. and You're getting the raw end of the deal everywhere you you turn. That was what these people he was writing to were going through. Now, interestingly enough, in the church that was dispersed, there were a few that got in good with the system. And And people were accepting Christ as they heard the gospel. And so the church was mixed with some of these people in extreme poverty that were just struggling to get by with people that were landowners and rich and were doing just fine, thank you. And somehow, they needed to come together and be a church. Somehow, the expectations of the time of a landlord abusing and mistreating those underneath him had to be changed if the church was to be the church, to be a community. So James is going to address that. He's going to address divisions among Christians. Now for them, maybe sometimes it was poverty and riches. But what divides us sometimes? We can come and we have 200 people and I, you often hear me say that means we have two or 300 opinions and, and we can be different and, and our personalities can grade on each other. We're a family. And just as James and Jesus probably graded or, or James graded, I don't know that he graded on Jesus. Jesus graded on James. We can grade on each other. Our personalities can annoy each other. Maybe we're divided over opinions on different things. And, and things that we hold so dear, and I know your, your brain can already go to things like vaccines and parenting and some of those other things. Things that, quite frankly, in terms of the gospel, aren't that important. Don't throw anything. <laughs> and I'm not saying we shouldn't have views and shouldn't stand for what we believe, but the gospel is primary. It controls everything we do. It is our purpose for still being on this planet. And so we have things that divide us and and James will speak to that. And James will speak to why we argue, why we bicker, why we struggle. How we respond. Why we take things out on others. What does that division do to our relationships? What does that that division do to our ministries as a church? To our ability to be about the gospel. And so these followers of Christ are dispersed often in persecution, often driven from homeland, often in poverty, and they 're trying to live for God in a secular, godless, idolatry filled world. And that speaks to us today. that speaks to us today. You know the next sort of vital about James or information about James: when was James written and, and this, is, this is a lot of fun to think through dates. But it looks like James was written about 45 to 48 AD. Um, We know that he was executed. We know that actually from secular historians. We know that he was executed in 62. So we're going to go with a date before then. Same reason why the other James couldn't have written it. Um... But also, there's no mention of the Jerusalem Council, which was huge in the life of the church and would have uh, pertained to some of the things in the book of James. And that was about 50 AD, 49, 50 AD. So we're probably going to date it before then. And so it looks like 45 to 48 AD is about right. It's probably, and this, this was really interesting, it's probably the earliest New Testament book we have. You know, some have said it was written really late because James hated Paul and was trying to counter Paul. Nonsense. James and Paul, actually, we know from the verses in Acts, were, we're friends. They knew each other. They weren't in opposition. And when we get to chapter 2, we're going to see that their message wasn't in opposition. And James is writing as an early church pastor. The last word of verse 1. So we have James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. It's just a simple greeting, normal greeting, but it's really interesting because the word, the root of that word is the word joy. And, and so the idea is like, hello with joy. Or we'd say, hey, I'm happy to see you. Whether we are or not, we say that, but no. I'm happy to see you is what he says. I'm joyful to see you. And one of the most quoted verses is the next verse. My brothers, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. And so already here, James is masterfully starting to preview where he's going with it. I'm joyful to see you. And here's another thing you should be joyful about. Trials. We'll get to that next week. So what are some of the themes of James? For me, it's really helpful to, to get a big picture, to see how everything fits together, because for the next three months, we're going to get down in the weeds and go verse by verse and study each of the paragraphs and each, each of the sections. But sometimes we look at, at four, five, six themes to think of. James is a little harder. Some people, div- everyone divided James differently. Some people see 25 different themes. Some people see 12 different themes. You're going to see my list. I'm about 11 or 12 some people three, some people two. The the point is James is hitting all these different topics that feel random, but they're not. And so we start with the main theme. I would say there's one theme of James and maybe 11 or so topics that correspond to that theme. The main theme of James, real faith impacts every part of our lives. Real faith impacts impacts every part of our lives. And I didn't say should impact. Yes, it should impact. But if it isn't, then it's not real faith. The fact is, if it's real faith, it will impact every part of our lives. And, and he's going to pound on this and pound on this and pound on this. This is living our faith 24-7. This is where the sermon series title comes from. Because living our faith every moment of the day is a sign of spiritual maturity. And James should know. James was changed by Jesus, by his encounter with Jesus. His whole life was changed. And he's going to argue that that faith should apply to every part of life. And so we're going to see phrases that that Joshua mentioned in worship this morning. He wants us to be a doer, not just a hearer. Why? Because that's how we know faith is impacting life. And so in James 1.22, that's one of the key verses but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so he is going to talk very practically. How do we do it? How do we do the word? We, we just spent the last seven weeks studying the word of God, which can be great information about the Bible, but we're following it with James because if we're not putting it into practice, that's just stuffy head knowledge that's worthless. The point of studying about the Bible and and reassuring ourselves that this is the Word of God is to make sure we're in it. Make sure we're doing it. And so James says, be doers of the Word. Not hearers only. That's ridiculous. Don't deceive yourselves. Do the Word of God. See, the dispersed Christians, I don't believe they were having that much problems with doctrine. I think their issue was how do we put it into practice? Just like us. You know, this, this is... We at Village... We are a doctrinally sound church. I am amazed at the level of doctrinal understanding that persists throughout our congregation. And so that's why James is so key to us is because are we putting that into practice is the question we have to ask. Is it head knowledge or does it show in our feet, in our hands, in our actions? One author said with James is he dealt with every area of a Christian's life. What he is, what he does, what he says, what he feels, and what he has. And that's a really, really good description. And so we're going to see a lot of practical admonition. In James, there's 108 verses. 54 of them are imperatives. Instructions for what to do. But he's not trying to give us a checklist. He's showing us how a real faith exhibits itself in real life. I can remember in college, one of my close friends um, worked at Coco's. She was a waitress there. And I had always heard rumors about what waitresses think about Christians. And so I, I asked her one, one time that we were at dinner together. I said, so so is that true what, what people say? And, and she was like, let me tell you. She goes, when, when we see a Christian family come in, we fight to make sure they are not in our zone. Now this is... I went to Biola. This is a believing young lady who has sold out for Christ, and she goes, "We we we hate having Christians in our in our our area. They they are disrespectful. They demand much more. They they want to to to. They're always on you about things. Their tips are usually minimal. Sometimes it's a nice track, but that's hard to live on. They stay at tables for a long time. I'm not saying we should never do that." But I thought about that because it was one thing for it to be a story and one thing for one of my close friends to be saying this. I've heard other pastors say the same thing. One person wrote a, um, a note to um, Pastor Bill Hybels. said, please let me convey a few things about Christians from a non-Christian waiter's perspective. So this is a non-Christian. It's quite well known among wait staff that when tables of Christians get seated in your section, it will be anything but a positive experience. Christians are demanding. They tend to stay at tables for a long time. They often try to push literature and they rarely tip generously. Village, that ought not to be. I know this is one little example and, and, and I, am, I am actually pretty confident this doesn't represent most of us here because I've been to eat with a lot of you. But it's an example of how Christianity doesn't impact life, right? Right? It's an example where, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, but hey, when it comes to tipping, nah, that's my money. When it comes to how I treat people, and and so these are the kinds of things that James is going to meddle in and I hope step on our toes and I hope convict us of and challenge us on. Real faith impacts every part of life. And one of the reasons I think James was so in tune with this is even though he was he was fighting Christ before he was saved, he was hearing it. He was hearing some of the message. You know, I, I think he was saturated a little bit with it, and maybe that was part of the resistance. He kept hearing it. But here's another passage that's really interesting that that I think reflects where James goes with the book of James in Mark chapter three, thirty-one to thirty-five. This is another story where Mary and the brothers come to get Jesus. And it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he, being Jesus, answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And and listen to the answer. This is familiar to us, but think of it in terms of the theme of James. For whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus said, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is the main theme of James? Doing the will of God. And I think while he was resistant to it there, I think those words echoed in his head and echoed in his head. And he knew that Jesus said, no, if we really follow him, if we really are believers, if we really are family with him, we will do what he says. And so we see him write things like James 1.22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. We see things like James 2.17 in the next chapter. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James got it. He got what Jesus was saying. A little delayed, but he got it. And God used that. If we think of that as the main theme, it helps us understand the whole book. Because really the rest of the book, the entirety of the book, is all of these different parts of life and how they come in in submission to our walk with God. How they come under being impacted by faith. And so he's going to take themes of real life and and try to show how we, we should be Christians in those. He'll do topics such as trials, and we'll go through a list of topics in a minute. But topics such as trials and money and our words and favoritism and relationships and fighting and pride and planning and prayer. And he'll say all these things need to be impacted by faith. And if you think about it, think about what worldliness is. Because one of James's themes is, is godliness instead of worldliness. And don't, don't be a friend with the world um, because we are seeking God with all our heart. But when we think of worldliness and all the things that can drive us into worldliness, how we can drift, every one of of us in this room can drift quickly into worldliness if we're not on guard. Some of those things that would have us drift are the very things he, he addresses. We drift when we forget to have a fear of God, when we become practical atheists, where we just don't even think about God. We drift into worldliness when we have fear and discouragement from circumstances, We drift into worldliness when we give in to temptation or when we identify with and enjoy the world or when we have critical speech and we're we're condemning speech and putting others down. We drift into worldliness when we start favoring the rich or those we like or those we want to be around. When we deal with self-centeredness and pride, when arrogance takes over, when we love money and stuff. And a sign of drifting into worldliness is when we don't pray as much. When we minimize prayer because we just don't see our need for God. Those are the things James is going to deal with. But all that comes under real faith and real life. And that we're to live out our faith in every part of our lives. And he's going to hit these and weave them together real faith works. It, it impacts our life. And so what are some of the topics? And I'm just going to list 11 this morning. We'll go through these quickly because these are the nature of what we'll be studying. But I want you to get a flavor of what he's doing. These are real life areas that a real faith will affect. The, the first theme we're going to see is that the foundation of living this way, it's not my own effort, the foundation of living this kind of real faith is in the character of God. And... It's interesting because James is an intensely practical book, but if you start to read it carefully, he weaves theology of the person of God and the character of God through the whole thing as a foundation. We're going to find that God gives wisdom and he gives it generously. He's a generous God. We're going to find that God gives good gifts to his children. He is not the author or origin of temptations and trials. He is unchanging. He is merciful. He yearns for us. He is jealous of our hearts. If we fall into sin, He heals. He forgives. That's the kind of God James is going to portray. This isn't just a book of moralisms of how to live. This is a book that says because God is like this and we have faith in Him, then our response is this. And so the first topic that you're going to see woven through almost every sermon is the nature of God. He's going to deal with trials and temptations. We'll hit that next week because that's the next section in James. We'll hit it again toward the end of James. Again, he he hits these multiple times. And we're going to talk about patience and trust in God and trusting the character of God. Another topic he deals with is how do you gain godly wisdom? And he's going to compare good versus bad sources of wisdom, godliness and worldliness, and are we going to the right place? He's going to talk a lot about building healthy family and community in the church. Building healthy family and community in the church. And you're going to see that in the themes. A lot of them are relational. But then also look as we read through it, how many times does he use brother and sister and and talk about family in the book? Even when he's giving hard information, it's my brothers, my sisters, my brethren. But he's also going to talk about what destroys relationships. How we deal with broken relationships. what What we've done to cause that. Another theme he's going to deal with, another topic, is partiality and prejudice. And in the world today where we, we still are struggling with racism, we, we, that is one area that we need to apply the book of James to. Other areas just as looking down on people for any reason, for any class, for amount of money, or for any, anything they have. Do we have prejudice in our midst? And we've got to deal with that honestly. And we've got to say, let's look inside and let's make sure there's no place for that here. And let's make sure that we are advocates for the truth on that issue. That we are all equal at the foot of the cross. That we are brothers and sisters. He's going to talk about the power of the tongue to either build up or destroy. And what it does to relationships in the church negatively, but also what it can do positively. Positively. See, all these things are practical ways that our our faith in Christ should just ooze out of. If I'm loving God with all my heart, it's going to ooze out of my language. It's going to ooze out of how I speak to you. He's going to challenge us to wholehearted godliness rather than worldliness. Wholehearted godliness rather than worldliness and making sure our eyes aren't drawn to the world. And, and the appeal of the world is minimized. In a number of sections, he's going to talk about humility versus pride. And I think that's one of the reasons why he starts by calling himself a servant of God. He's going to meddle and talk about planning and control in our lives. Maybe we'll skip that section. No, we won't. But he's going to talk about what if you think you have it all worked out? What if your tendency is to have it all worked out in your life? Mine is. That. What does faith have to say about that? What does Christianity and trusting in God have to say about that? And then he'll meddle some more and talk about money and stuff. Money, having it and not having it. The conflict between people over it. And that's going to come up several times. And finally, he's going to end. It'll be several places, but the primary place is going to end with talking about prayer and the necessity for prayer. Village, as we study James, this could be an incredibly impactful book if we're willing to study it honestly. If we're willing to study it with not only our Bibles open, but our lives and our hearts open for the Holy Spirit to convict and direct. Do you want to be known as a Christian in every area of your life? Do you want to be all in for Christ? That's the question that we're going to to look at in this series. There You've heard me say this before, there is no part of your life that Jesus doesn't look at and say, that's mine. I want to change that. I want to transform that. I want to make that more like me. And we don't want to resist that. It might mean some challenges. Living for Christ in every area of life is, is sacrificial. It means making decisions the world doesn't understand. There was a story that one pastor told of, of a, a man named Rufus that he knew. Worked part-time at the loading docks of trucking companies. Desperately wanted a better job. Um, he had completed his associate's degree in transportation. Wanted to make it a full-time career. A position opened up. He went in interviewed for the position. And the pastor asked him, well, how did the interview go? He said, they offered me a job. They offered me a job in sales, which would pay well and offer unlimited opportunity. It was an exciting option. And Rufus said, but I didn't take it. Although it was everything he wanted and catch this and and we can argue about the wisdom of this later, but this is what a life sold out to Christ looks like. Although it was everything he wanted, he would, he would have to give up his ministry with singles in the church and not come to church anymore. And so he said he would wait for a job to come along that would allow him to continue ministering to the people he was ministering to. That is radical Christianity. And James is going to argue things like that are normal Christianity would we be willing to order our lives around doing God's work rather than what we want? I'm convicted by that. I hope we all are. That's what we're going to study in the book of James. So come with me on this journey. Come with us as we teach and learn and study it. Lord God, we come to you as we start this series And we ask for your Holy Spirit to burn your truth in our hearts. For you to reveal areas that we need to give over to you. Areas that we've held on to that we haven't surrendered to you. Areas that maybe we just haven't thought about how Christianity affects. How our faith affects. Lord, I pray for Village that we would be a church full of 100% disciples. 24-7 disciples. Because I know you will use that And you will reach others for the gospel through that. Lord, thank you for the study. Burn it in our hearts. In your name, amen.